This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Baron Black of Cross Harbor, Conrad Black, has been a member of the British House of Lords since 2001. He is the author of critically acclaimed biographies of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Richard Nixon. Lord Black is the former head of the world's third largest newspaper empire, which published London's Daily Telegraph and the Chicago Sun-Times, among many others. He is a columnist now at Canada's National Post, a publication which he founded, as well as a columnist at National Review Online. His latest work is Flight of the Eagle, the grand strategies that brought America from colonial dependence to world leadership. Lord Black, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you, Dr. Muller. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I have enjoyed your previous works greatly, and about those we'll say more later. But in terms of your newest book, Flight of the Eagle, you're talking about a major work here written by someone who's looking at America from the outside, but also from a very close relationship. This is a major work on the story of America in terms of its role in the world. How did you come about the writing of this book? Uh, Because, of course, there's a vast literature on the history of the United States, and much of it is is very well written, and much of it is extremely rigorous scholastically. So if it was just a matter of, uh, of trying to replicate that, there would be no point to it. The field is very well covered. But it seemed to me, and, and this is confirmed by Henry Kissinger in his introductory note, that there had not been a study of the specific aspect of American history, of the strategic decisions taken by American statesmen at key points uh, that that advanced the country stage by stage from being the colonies of uh, of 250 years ago to uh, to to the tremendous unique eminence the United States has had in the world in in our times the temptation is there to say that well the US just grew because it had the ability to attract the immigrants to a very rich continent. And uh, that was, of course, a key ingredient. But if that were the whole story, then Brazil, for example, which is a very important country, but nothing like as important as the United States, would have had a history comparable to that of the U.S., and it has not. And um, in the case of the United States, apart from the advantages of inheriting the English language and the common law and the the, the legal traditions of the British, even though the, the uh, independence of the country was accomplished at the expense of the British, it was on the basis of principles that were, in fact, British principles, and uh, and were proclaimed to be so even by the founders of the country. Uh, that that fact, um, a, a coupled to the geographic benefits mentioned, gave the United States something of an advantage over other. Uh, new world countries, but uh, these actions by these statesmen for the most part famous men, well-known and well-celebrated, but not particularly for the things I describe in this book, uh, did give the United States an edge that, that enabled it to move almost steadily upwards in the world in its influence and, uh, and its objective strength. And uh, I, I th- and I think that there is nothing remotely parallel to it in the history of the world for a country to rise so quickly 
in 200 years from a, a few colonies to a, a tremendous preeminence in the whole world. I found reading your book fascinating, and I wondered at, at points if you were intentionally offering what uh, modern historians might call a revisionist history, because you're certainly telling the story. For one thing, you're leaping over a lot of the contemporary academic debates uh, that have uh, certainly fractured uh, the academic study of American history. But you've told the story in a way that uh, that certainly draws attention to and perhaps even corrects the impression by your judgment of, of how the American narrative is told. Um, I, I wouldn't put it quite so... Um in quite so authoritarian a way as that. Uh, but I, I think that I have a slightly different as, uh, aspect uh, of these things uh, in, in some cases. I mean, for example, I think the, the element of the Revolutionary War that was really the British saying, look, we've doubled our national debt largely to get rid of the French from your borders, and and you have 30% of our population, and you're the wealthiest part of the British world. As you know, the Americans at that time were British citizens, just as the British were. Um, and we want you to help with this. Now, they didn't do it properly. They made terrible mistakes, and, and I don't gloss over that. But the fact is, it wasn't an unreasonable position for them to take. But they did it in a very stupid way. And then the Americans very intelligently devised this theory of no taxation without representation. but And in theory, that's right. But in, in practice, of course, nobody ever taxes themselves unless they have to. But if the British had had the presence of mind to say uh, at the start of the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian Wars, as they're known in the U.S., uh, look, we'll, we'll take care of the defense of the American colonies, but we want you to help us with it in raising a temporary tax to help pay for it, the colonies would have done it. They just didn't think of doing it, that's all. I don't negate or um, lack respect for the American Revolution, and I, I, if, if you've read that section of the book, you can attest to the great admiration I express for uh, Franklin and Washington and a number of the other founders, but, um, but I, I think you're right that I, I do offer a slightly different view of it to the one that is standard in the U.S., and I must say standard in Britain as well. I mean, the, so successful was the immense propaganda machine conducted by Thomas Jefferson that this this revolutionary war was the dawn of human liberty. The British even have bought into some of it. Well, I have indeed read every word and, uh, frankly, enjoyed reading every word, and yet <laughs> I, I may, as an American... Uh, see a, a greater uh, a difference in terms of the way you see the story than, than you may see it yourself, having been raised in Canada and now a, a peer of the British House of Lords. But I do want to say you're very generous. Uh, as a matter of fact, the entire book, the, the project itself is very generous toward the United States. And, uh, no, it I, deserves no less. You know, I, It is a great country. I mean, I, as you know, have had my differences with it, but that doesn't mean it isn't a great country. And Americans are right to be proud of it. Well, as you tell the story... And, and this is where I think many of our listeners may not have really seen this perspective before. You talk about several different phases, nine indeed, by which America emerged as a major world power after, uh, well, frankly, the, the most uh, humble beginnings imaginable. But the first phase you talk about is really cooperating with the British to uh, limit the uh, the military threat and even the, the political presence of the French from North America. And as you point out in the so-called Seven Years' War, or what Americans call the French and Indian War, 
the England took on uh, massive debt. The, uh, the people of Great Britain took on a massive debt, and that's what you're talking about when you say that, uh, that much of the pretext for the American Revolution was actually uh, Britain's – well, you're arguing straightforwardly. It's, it's legitimate claim that America ought to help to pay for that military effort that had offered it so many benefits. Well, I, I believe that to be true. Uh, but I, I have to say, and I did write in the book, as you know, that the achievement of these colonists, and, and they, they were, of course, not numerous. Now, they weren't quite the scattering of rough lumberjacks and, and, and uh, land clearers that mythology would hold. They were about 30% of the population uh, of the British Isles, and they had a bigger population than some well-established European countries like Denmark and Portugal and so on. And they weren't that much smaller than Frederick the Great's Prussia at that time. But with that said, um, their achievement in, in helping to persuade the British to remove the French and then helping, in fact, persuading the French to help them remove the British from America these colonists, in effect, manipulating the two greatest powers in the world. It was an astonishing achievement. And I don't think a revered figure, though Benjamin Franklin is, and as he deserves to be, um, I don't think he has given his full level of credit for one of the greatest diplomatic triumphs in world history in his mission to France. I mean, there was a country that was an absolute monarchy, no parliament, nothing resembling a parliament or a legislature, had sat since the young Richelieu dismissed the Estates General in 1614. That was 164 years before. And Frank Franklin persuaded them to enter the war on the side of republicanism, democracy, and, and secession from empires. Well, to put it a different way, because they hated the British so much. Um, well, they, they, were, they were rather annoyed at the rough treatment they'd got in the, in, in the French and Indian War. That is true. But still, the, the French are nothing if not clever people, and yet Franklin persuaded them to do this. I want to talk more about Franklin in just a moment. But, but first of all, I want to suggest that a part of what you're doing in your book that I think is, is if not completely new, then certainly recently uh, new to the literary world – is that you're placing the development of America in the larger world scene in a very intentional way, including the colonial era, the revolutionary era, and, and, and the early republic, in, in a way that I don't know others have done. But just to put uh, this into a very concise summary, you argue that in the first two phases, as, as I understand it, of America's emergence as a world power, the first phase was cooperating with the British to rid North America of the French, and then basically cooperating with the French to rid North America of the British. Rid the central part of North America. They, they, yes. They they did not, of course, remove them from Canada. No, but you more or less intimate that at least Washington would have had the ambition to do so. Uh, oh, he certainly had the ambition. And, yeah. and um, uh, Franklin and the then loyal to the revolution, Benedict Arnold, actually conducted a military mission to achieve that. But it, but it, was, it was turned away. I want to ask you now, looking at those first two phases, do you believe that there was any inherent American logic to this? Or, or is this reading backwards in history and seeing a pattern that those who were living in it wouldn't have seen? The, these two phases, cooperating with the, the uh, English to the expense of the French and then cooperating with the French to the expense of, of, of the British, did any of the American founding fathers or founding generation actually have that as an explicit plan or did it just happen? I, I think it, it, it more it just happened, but... The events came up and, and the, the tactics to follow to try and achieve the end that had been adopted uh, commended themselves. But that was superimposed over a broad view that Franklin and Washington in particular did have, that, 
that the American colonies would grow, they would grow quickly, and Franklin predicted in the 1740s that in a hundred years uh, the Americans would be more numerous than the British, and he got it within a few years. He was very, uh, almost uh, exact, very close to being exact in in in, in his timing, and uh, even before the revolution began, uh, Franklin made a number of comments uh, living in Britain that the entire natural population growth of the British Isles was moving to America, that the, the extent to which the population grew each year represented the number of immigrants, not I, I, obviously the identical people, but uh, the, the almost equivalent number of immigrants who packed up from Britain and Ireland and moved uh, to America. And uh, so the trend, they, they saw the trend and uh, but they knew that they had to get rid of the French. I mean, it wasn't the French Canadians. They were only 65,000 people, and they weren't going to be a problem. But, uh, but of course, France was a great military power, and, and, and it had the ability to move armed forces to Quebec and then advance into New York and New England, and they did from time to time. And that was a threat, and they needed the British to help them get rid of that. Once Britain had done that, the American leaders realized right away that it changed the balance of, uh, uh, of forces, the correlation of uh, forces and influence between uh, uh, the Americans and the mother country, as it then was still. Uh, namely, that the Americans didn't actually need the British as much as they had done before. And, um, and so they, they were clearly, they clearly had it in their minds to agitate for for local self-government, autonomy in the colonies, and not and not just in effect ruled by decree from overseas, and then the the British completely mishandled it. It must be said that all indications are that a third of the Americans opposed the revolution, and a third of the British opposed the king's policy in trying to suppress the revolution. And the leading statesman in Britain, uh, the elder Peel, the Earl of Chatham, and uh, Edmund Burke and Charles James Fox all attacked the official policy in terms just as violent as those employed at the Continental Congress. And if the king had relied upon his most capable political advisors rather than uh, the king's friends whom he put in to do what, what in his somewhat uninformed state he wanted done, then it, it would have been worked out. It would, have, and, and this is what Franklin was agitating for: some kind of a a commonwealth where you'd have one monarch over it all, but a constitutional monarchy where there'd be democracies in in the different units. Uh, somewhat like happened eventually with Canada and Australia, but of course the United States, as it became, was uh, you know had a head start on those countries and a bigger population. You use two phrases in speaking of the United States, or at least the first one, perhaps the nation that became the United States. You refer to. America as the aspirant state, and later, several times, as the predestined nation. Can you expand yeah. on those two terms? Well, it seemed to me, uh, on the basis of my research, that as early as the 1740s and certainly the 1750s, uh, informed opinion in the American colonies wanted an enhanced status, an enhanced political and governmental jurisdiction for the colonies. And Franklin, being the visionary he was, wanted greater unity between the colonies. 
and, uh, and and of course that was an issue only resolved with the constitution after the revolution was successful. But uh, there was this aspiration to make something distinct and political out of the Americas. When the, when the first settlers arrived, they were just seeking a better life. They didn't have any political ideas at all. There were religious groups, of course, the uh, Puritans and the Quakers the, uh, and the uh, followers of William Penn and so forth. But, but they were just building communities. Um, they weren't trying to think in terms of building a country. And it just gradually emerged, and it had emerged by the time this book begins, at the, just at the start of the French and Indian War, that the leading people in, in most of the larger colonies, anyway, people like Franklin and Washington, Jefferson and so forth, John Adams, Madison, they, they, they wanted the, the American colonies, they aspired to a political identity that would be new, and an improvement on the old world. That's that's what they aspired to. So it was an aspirant state. And then once they achieved independence uh, and and had written themselves a constitution that would work and, and put an end to the disunity and political chaos that had preceded it and had so bedeviled Washington during the Revolution, uh, as long as they could surmount the issue of slavery, and I believe that section of the book covers that, gets over that bridge. Once, once that was accomplished, all the intelligent statesmen in, in Europe realized that it was a giant that was growing quickly. Uh, Napoleon sold Louisiana, which of course is much larger than the present state of Louisiana. It was the whole center of the country uh, to, the, to the Americans because he knew that he did not have the naval power to Sustain it. The, the the British Navy could cut off the ability of France or any other country to sustain an overseas territory, and and so he sold it deliberately to the Americans with the view that it would help the Americans rise up and challenge the British, and 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 in effect usurp their position as the leading English-speaking country. What he could not foresee was that when that happened, the British had the intelligence to adapt to changing circumstances and form a, an alliance with the Americans. But the, uh, uh, in the latter part of the 19th century, the great German chancellor and the founder of the German Empire, Bismarck, said the fundamental reality of world affairs is that the British and the Americans speak the same language. Everyone then could see the United States coming. You know, they were just effectively waiting for when it would come out in the world scene and that really started with Theodore Roosevelt. We're not sure that Otto von Bismarck actually said this, but he's credited with having said, God has a special providence for fools, drunks, and the United States of America. In any event, it is known that he saw America rising. <laughs> he, he, he was a, 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 an amusing, if a somewhat cynical, phrase maker. I mean, his comments on the Balkans have been often uh, cited, you know, that the Great powers had to stay away from the quarrels of those sheep stealers and things like that. They were it was amusing to hear all that quoted during the unfortunate Bosnian events of about fifteen years ago. I want to ask you very quickly as we as we transition to think about the larger narrative of the story here. When you're talking about America as the predestination, you're using a, a secular 
uh, you're using that word in a secular sense. In, in what sense, then, was America predestined uh, for its rise among the nations? Well, because as soon as the Civil War was over, it was effectively, uh, along with the British and the Germans, the most powerful country in the world. I mean, prior to the Civil War, it had been an important country, but there was this terrible question mark over how that was going to sort itself out, the whole issue of slavery and secessionism. But once uh, once the United States had demonstrated its ability to, to raise an immense army and, and uh, put very talented generals at the head of it and, and uh, elevate in a time of supreme emergency a leader of such genius as Lincoln and had crushed the insurrection, its population at about 35, 36 million was slightly smaller than France or Britain or Germany, but but the economic strength of the country, even with the war damage in it, was was towards the top of the European powers. And then and then any every, everyone could see that the immigration that was coming in, the westward expansion, the laying down of railways, the laissez-faire economic system, uh, was going to create an immense country very quickly. And, and it did, in fact, almost triple its population between the Civil War and World War One. And in the 1880s, the United States had a, a approximately equal-sized economy to Germany. And uh, at the beginning of that decade, but it put up uh, GDP increases of 8% a year each year in that decade. I mean, it fluctuated slightly, but it was an average of 8% for each year. I mean, these are the numbers that third world countries like China, bootstrapping itself out of extreme primitiveness, can do for a while, but not the greatest economy in the world, just building on what it has. And, And so it in that phrase that I eventually got to um, in reference to Pearl Harbor, because Mr. Churchill wrote it in his diary uh, on that day, at the end of that day, from the former British Foreign Secretary, Edward Gray, he said that the United States is like a gigantic boiler. Once it's stoked up, there's no end to what it can generate. And and people could see that coming because it, it was just growing at such a fantastic rate. And uh, as I say, it went from 35 million to 91 million people. And in that time, I think France went from 38 million to 39 million. Now, it lost two provinces to Germany in the Franco-Prussian War, but it's still a a startling contrast. And a a great share of the natural population growth of the British Isles, the German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Italy, all of those areas uh, just immigrated to the United States in that era. It's one thing for a secular historian to write of America as the aspirant state. It's another thing altogether for a secular historian to speak of America as the predestined nation. That is a very interesting category, not only historically, but when you think about it, it's interesting in terms of how that word now finds itself in a very natural understanding in American history. Lord Black, of course, is looking backwards. This is an argument that's best made backwards, but what he brings to this argument is the fact that he is actually saying that if you looked at America, even in that colonial era, 
if you looked at it honestly and you saw it in the context of the world stage, you saw America headed on a trajectory toward leadership in that world. Even as he acknowledges in the very subtitle of his book that America was then in a situation described as colonial dependence, it didn't stay there for long. And Lord Black is arguing it was assured in terms of the world picture that it would not. In terms of your book's expansive story, you begin with a nation that's not yet a nation, and then you arrive at, at the end of your book, a nation, the United States, as you explain, that is actually threatened only by itself, uh, a very unique position, privileged position in terms of the world. In terms of how to tell the uh, the story between those two points, how, how would you summarize your narrative in terms of this predestined nation, this aspirant nation, arriving on the world scene? The Americans, well, they, when they set up their country, they made it clear that it was a sort of light unto the nations, and they were going to, they were going to show the whole world how, how to build a, a free country, and a country not paralyzed by a class system or a, a anti-meritocratic uh, system of unjust retardations of people's efforts and, and uh, rights. And and they set out to do that. And uh, it must be said that they you know, the claims that it was the only democracy in the world were not true. I mean, at the end of the American Revolution, they had no more rights than they had had before, other than that they had a resident a resident government government resident in the U.S. and not not an overseas one. And they had no more rights than a British citizen or a Swiss or Dutch or Swedish citizen. But they. But that isn't the point. They 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 had this mystique, this mythos of being the torchbearer for democracy. And as the country grew and grew rapidly and resolved the slavery issue, uh, the, this eminence of America as a democratic, meritocratic place uh, steadily grew. And while the founders had proclaimed their separation from Europe. A Europe with which some of them were very familiar. I mean, Franklin spent much of his adult life there, and while Washington never went to Britain, he certainly dealt with the British Army a lot, with all these, for the most part, incompetent commanders they sent over. And uh, and of course, you know, Jefferson knew parts of Europe quite well. Um, the the uh, even the Monroe Doctrine, while it said that the United States was opposed to foreign non. You know, powers outside the Americas uh, attempting to increase their interests in the Americas beyond what they then were. They also said in the Monroe Doctrine that the United States, for its part, renounced any interest in uh, intervening in Europe. Now, of course, it was completely fanciful in 1824 because they had no power to do that anyway. But the and nor did they have any power to enforce the Monroe Doctrine. They were relying on the Royal Navy for that. But that's not the issue. The the point is the Americans always retained, particularly the the uh, principal academic and commercial interests in the in the East Coast cities in Philadelphia, New York, and Boston, and so forth. Always retained an interest in Europe and always retained some connection to it. And once the United States had risen to great power and absolute power in its hemisphere, um, 
and had been invited into world affairs. And Theodore Roosevelt was asked to mediate the peace in the Russo-Japanese War, and he was asked to take a position in, in the controversy over Morocco between France and Germany. Uh, and, and up to a point, he, he was eager to make America's influence known in the world, and, and that was part of the rationale for the Panama Canal. Um, at a certain point, the Americans were bound to recognize that it was in their interest to support the relatively like-minded countries in the world against the forces of tyranny. And uh, and uh, this this reasoning ultimately asserted itself in World War One, though we had to rely, we, I'm using the alliance we now, the whole of the alliance that ultimately won World War One, had to rely on the stupidity of the German emperor in attacking American flag merchant shipping uh, to, to bring the U.S. all the way into the war. But, and he, and then, and I think, again, he's not received adequate credit for this, Woodrow Wilson was the first person to inspire the masses of the world with the vision of enduring peace. But, and it, it didn't work, of course, but it was a prophecy that did, it still inspires people, and he was the first to make it. But the, the, uh, it, it, this became even more evident in the Second World War, where the moral contrast was so stark. I mean, you could, up to a point, you could say, well, King George V and Kaiser Wilhelm II were first cousins, and they weren't, uh, you know, they, they find that George V was a more benign man, and he ran a much, he ran a democratic monarchy where the German emperor didn't, and was something of a warmonger. But, uh, but the fact is, you could sort of lump them together a bit if you wanted to. But and the Tsar, of course, was a cousin of theirs too, and that, and that was even more of a of an anti-democratic society. But you couldn't do that in World War Two, and you couldn't. I mean, even Lindbergh couldn't seriously say that Churchill and and Hitler were morally indistinguishable and equally preferable or objectionable from an American standpoint. They weren't. I mean, Churchill was half American. He spoke English. He was he was a a man of parliament. He wouldn't even accept being named a duke at the end of his career. He was so attached to to, to the whole system that he said was based on the phrase, trust the people. Yes. And, and, uh, and, he, he, and Americans immediately identified with him as a champion of democracy, a very great champion of democracy. Hitler, of course, was a satanic character. He was an absolute enemy of democracy. This was a kind of combination of, of natural cultural affinities with the national interest to bring the U.S. out of its own hemisphere and to play in the world a role appropriate to its immense power. As an American reader of your book about America, after all, uh, I found one of the particular uh, uh, aspects uh, of your writing to be of tremendous interest. You care deeply about people and personages on the world stage. And you offer some very interesting readings of leading people connected with the American story. And I have to say, it begins with Washington. And it actually begins with your very first reference to Washington. So if we just go through several of these people to kind of tell the story, uh, just in sum, uh, what is George Washington's role in all of this? And, and what does he have to do with America's arrival on the world stage? Uh, of course, his role is an immense one, and the huge prestige that he's enjoyed 
uh, ever since the prime of his career uh, uh, throughout the world uh, it was entirely earned. This was not a myth. I mean, there's there's myths about the cherry tree and uh, that sort of thing, but but in fact he he deserves to be so admired and. You would know that there is a statue of him in in London in Trafalgar Square, Absolutely. right in front of the National Gallery, uh, just as there is of Lincoln in Parliament Square in front of the Parliament buildings. But the um, I would say that the greatness of Washington and the relevance to the story is he had the vision of America. Uh, he he took upon himself the burden of conducting the military struggle. It was most of the time a guerrilla war. It's not frequently recognized to be so, but it was. And uh, but not a not a, a, a vicious guerrilla war of the kind that we have seen in modern times. And he certainly observed the the proprieties with yes. the enemy and never had anything to do with uh, abusing civilians or anything like that. Uh, and in fairness, the British conducted themselves for the most part in a reasonably civilized way, also. But the um, but he he had that vision. He 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 had the faith. It took a tremendous act of will as well as ingenuity and courage to to conduct that war as he did for seven years. It was a lonely struggle. You point times. out something else about Washington, and and I think this is a very keen insight. Um, you're quite honest about his beginnings and, and the fact that he wasn't a great military success at the beginning, but nonetheless emerged as, as something of the absolutely essential leader. But when he became president, you point out that he had no precedents uh, from which to learn. There, there were exactly. no other constitutional governments. Uh, Dr. Munger, he not only had to establish what the presidency was and what the president should do, but when he laid down his symbolic sword as commander of the Continental Army, his officers, including Hamilton, urged him just to take over the government because they all knew that the politicians couldn't do it, and particularly under the structure they had. And he declined to do that. He said, we did not fight a revolution for that. And I put it to you and to your listeners that that distinguishes the United States as much as any other thing in political terms, from the history of Latin America, where the corresponding people, and, and they had they had some great revolutionary leaders there, uh, simply just seized power, and there was not much attention paid to uh, the, the, uh, the state papers by which power was exercised, or the formalities and constitutional niceties by which these things were done. They just, you know, if you could take power, you did it and held it. And Washington wouldn't have anything to do with that. And then when he had served two terms as president, did not accept a salary, had, had only his out-of-pocket expenses paid, you know, made the famous uh, address to the Jewish synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island, and to the Roman Catholics in Maryland, that they or their ancestors had fled sectarian oppression, and as president of the New Republic, he guaranteed they would never face that in this country. They're terribly moving statements of principle. Yes, they are. And, and, he, and at the end of two terms, he was urged to continue. He said, no, it would be a bad precedent, and I'm not going to do it. I'm going to retire. And, and uh, he, he, he was, a, in some ways, not as brilliant a man as Jefferson uh, and, and, and Franklin, and, and uh, didn't have the economic insight of, of Hamilton, but, uh, but he, he was a great leader. He had broad shoulders, good judgment, courage, stability, and uh, and his advice was practically all it was right. I mean, stay out of entangling alliances and 
you know, seek good relations with everybody, but remember states have interests and not friends, and we're trying to build our republic here and not, not project ourselves elsewhere. Uh, and he was just very sensible. I'm having to skip a good deal of territory, not to mention history here, but you offer a very interesting reading of Abraham Lincoln and of the actual function of the American Civil War in terms of projecting America on the world stage. Well, Lincoln felt profoundly that for America to be believable in its moral claims, it had to resolve the slavery issue, that you just couldn't have people owning other people. And uh, and he believed that if that could be resolved, then then the potential for the United States to be, by example in particular, an immense influence in the world and a very positive influence was almost unlimited. And um, I, I think that you can cite various passages in, in his writings and speeches that he gave to show that he thought that it was the preservation of the integrality of the country that it should be it should be fought for and defended chiefly because of the potential America had to be a benign example to the world and um and he he had that view not in a jingoistic or arrogant way at all but in a in a in a in a way that was rather fraternally minded to all people, and he saw that the uh, role of America would be to show what free people could do and how a free society could function, and that the slavery made a mockery of this, and the endless threats of the South to secede were intolerable, and it had to stop. And uh, not far from where you're sitting, Dr. Muller, in Cincinnati, Ohio, he gave us just across the Ohio River from from your state. He gave a famous address, I think, in 1859, and he said, "You know, you're brave people, you Southerners. A lot of Southerners had crossed the river to hear him, and um, he was known to be running for president at this point. He said, "You're brave people, as brave as anyone, but you're not braver than we are, and you're not as numerous. And if you insist in fighting us, you're not going to win." And uh, he he saw it coming. And uh, and yet he knew that the North was mobilized to war to suppress the insurrection, not to emancipate the slaves. So he tucked the emancipation of slavery in a very uh, tactically artistic way uh, inside the war aims by saying that we, you know we're emancipating the slaves that 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 we don't have. I mean, we I can't emancipate any slaves. We have no slaves. We're emancipating the slaves that are in the Confederacy. And they will rise up and make life difficult for the Confederacy and assist our war aims. I didn't put it quite as crudely as that, but that was the line yes. that was officially taken. So that the Northerners, who were much more enthused about crushing the rebellion than they were, although they disapproved of slavery, they weren't prepared to die to, to end it. But they were, if need be, as Julia Ward Howe's anthem said, they were prepared. They were they were prepared to die to suppress the insurrection. Prior to your publication and writing of this book, you wrote two, I would even say, magisterial biographies of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Richard M. Nixon. They also play parts in this story. Uh, Just with a few minutes remaining, let me ask you, uh, where do you place those two, not only in terms of your previous biographies, but in terms of this storyline? Why those two men, and uh, and what do they mean? Well, I wrote about them because I thought 
uh, again, a little like this book, I, I, I thought that they had not been correctly interpreted. In the case of Roosevelt, he was caught between uh, his, his absolutely worshipful admirers who thought he could do no wrong and was a saintly man, and those who disparaged him as a socialist and a man out of his depth in world affairs who was, who was fleeced by Stalin. And I did not believe either version really to be true or even remotely true. Uh, he was a, 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 an extremely brilliant statesman. I, I don't agree with every single thing that Roosevelt did, but he was he was a very great leader, and uh, and his program in to end the depression uh, gets perhaps two thirds grade as economics, but it gets an almost perfect score for catastrophe avoidance when he was inaugurated. The entire economic system had collapsed. The banks were closed. The stock and commodity exchanges were closed. The unemployment rate was over 30%, and there was no direct relief for them. The unemployed could could uh, starve, steal, or, or, or beg. That was it. And he had to do something. And my friends, and many of them are friends of mine, who on the right, on the intelligent conservative right, who who criticize him and, and lay at his door all the excesses of the welfare state that would have appalled him as much as they uh, appall his critics, um, uh, don't understand that he, he didn't have time to wait for economic cycles to sort it all out. He, immediate relief was necessary, and he put the people to work in these workfare programs, and, and the country benefited from it. I mean, it got yes. tremendous conservation in public works programs, so today would be called infrastructure, at bargain prices until the private sector could, could re-employ people. And as a war leader, uh, he, um, he kept the British and the Canadians in the war. He saw that if Britain went down, that the entire rest of the world apart from the Americas would be in the hands of Hitler, Stalin, and the Japanese. And, and and it would be an extremely dangerous situation. And and he kept the British and Canadians in the war. He he moved in time to prevent Stalin from making a separate peace with Hitler. Uh, then when the U.S. was attacked, he set up a war effort uh, that was not only unheard of in the quantity of production that it, that it was capable of, but where it was in fact coordinated by General Marshall and with Eisenhower, MacArthur, and Nimitz as theater commanders, you could not ask for a higher uh, level of commandability than that. And they, were, of course, were completely successful, all of them. And and it was a just war. And and uh, and the argument about the peace, uh, in 1940, France, Germany, Italy, and Japan were all dictatorships hostile to the English-speaking countries. And in 1945, they were all reintroduced into the West and became flourishing democratic allies of the English-speaking yes. countries. And uh, Stalin took 95% of the casualties fighting the Germans, and, and we took 90% of the strategic assets. I mean, the man was a genius. My own understanding of Roosevelt has changed over the last several years, and you're at least a part of the reason for that. Uh, it was George Will's uh, recommendation uh, that led me to read your biography. At the same time, I was reading many other things. And uh, and in, in my most recent book, I cite something that, that supports your point very much. Um, Alter tells the story of the inaugural day for FDR when one of his friends came in to see him and said, Franklin, if you pull this off, you'll be considered the best, uh, most successful president of the United States. 
if you fail at this, you'll be considered the worst president of the United States. And Roosevelt turned to him and said, no, if I fail, I'll be considered the last president of the United States. I think most Americans do not realize just what kind of catastrophe America then faced. And, and you do make that clear in this most recent book. It was, it was a terribly grave crisis. The, uh, Mr. Nixon, I would say, of course, that, that's a different type of story. But it seemed to me, if I may say this to, to you and your listeners, that the, the country was still saddled with this theory that he was a, a uniquely morally unfit person to hold that office. And he wasn't. He was a patriotic man. He never touched a tainted cent. He, he was somewhat of a cynic, and he was slightly neurotic at times. But if you look at the Watergate charges now, they're nonsense. The only one, they're absolute rubbish. The only one that has the slightest possibility of holding any water at all is the argument of, of advancing money to defendants in exchange for altered testimony. But there's never any evidence of that. I mean, I've listened to all these tapes. When he said, give the million dollars to Howard Hunt, whose wife had just died in an air crash, one of the Watergate people, not right in the building, but uh, made up the, the plot, the plan, such as it was. Um, he doesn't say do it so that he'll lie under oath. He, doesn't, he never asked for that particularly. He didn't. I, I mean, there just isn't much evidence that Nixon did anything to justify the horrible treatment he got. But unfortunately, for reasons that we will never know, and although we're all unlicensed psychiatrists, none of us can really speculate about it knowledgeably. He, he in effect, cooperated with his enemies because, uncharacteristically for men with such an acute sense of self-preservation, he bungled the investigation. But can I, can I just say this, that in 1969, when he was inaugurated, there were 550,000 draftees in Vietnam coming back 200 to 400 each week in body bags. No one really knew what they were doing there. There, there was no goal of victory. There was no definition of the national interest that was particularly plausible. Uh, there were no relations with, with the uh, Chinese or the major Arab powers. There was no peace process in the Middle East. There was no arms control discussion going on, nothing productive with the Russians. There were riots everywhere in the country, all over, race riots, anti-war riots, assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, skyjackings. The country was a shambles. And four years later, He'd extracted the United States completely from Vietnam with, with while well, preserving a non-communist government in Saigon, signed the greatest arms control agreement in history with the Soviet Union, which reestablished American nuclear superiority, by the way, uh, opened relations with China, had started a peace process in the Middle East, abolished the draft, uh, stopped the assassination, stopped the riots, stopped the skyjackings, ended uh, segregation, ended it got no credit for that, and, uh, and uh, founded the Environmental Protection Agency, and, and the people re-elected them by a margin that's never been equal before or since, 18 million votes, now, because he was a very good president. Now, he, he had his faults, but he was a very good president, and let's, let's do justice. That, that's all I was trying to write. Well, I think you did it uh, very convincingly, as a matter of fact, and, of course, your major theme in that book, at least by the time you come to the analysis at the end, is that to a degree probably not matched by any other modern American politician, he genuinely reflected the American people. You know, he liked to go bowling, and he liked to, to watch Archie Bunker on TV, and he liked to, uh, you know, he, he liked football and things like that. And, and, I mean, that wasn't the entire Nixon. He, he was a man who, who knew 200 
uh, concertos, for example, and the piano, but but he couldn't read music. He memorized them all, which is an astonishing feat. I mean, he was a, he was a, a very average person yes. up to a point, and then beyond that point, he he was a, a, an extremely brilliant person. But uh, he was complicated. But he was a very he was a very considerable president. He, he was an uneven president, but a very considerable one. Well, all I will say in affirmation of that is that when I first read his book written when he was vice president, entitled Six Crises, that's just an eye-opening view into the mind of a man who had immense world experience and wisdom before he ever came to the White House, as you unfortunately compare that with more recent presidents who have arrived with hardly any foreign policy experience at all. And and it, it, that remains one of the finest political memoirs written by any American president, one of the very best. Lord Black, it has been a privilege to discuss your most recent book, Flight of the Eagle. It may seem a bit greedy, but uh, at the same time, uh, I think it's appropriate to ask, uh, what's next in terms of your literary interest? Well, I, I'm relaunching my commercial and media career. We're just starting a television program up here in Canada, which I think actually may be available in the U.S. after a few, after a few months, but uh, I mean, whether it'll attract any viewers or not, something else again. But um, in terms of writing, I am, I'm writing something that's probably not of much interest to your listeners, but uh, there is some need for it up here. I'm writing a history of Canada, because I don't think it's been done in one volume in a way that's accessible to to you know to readers who are interested in history but want a, a reasonably interesting read the ones that are available are, are perfectly rigorous and fair but terribly terribly um, uh, turgid and difficult to read i have to tell you one other thing uh, you on on the one hand and judge richard posner on the other hand uh, absolutely intimidate uh, the rest of us i think in terms of the fact that you both have completely full lives judge posner is a as a federal judge and uh, and you in terms of of massive business interests and and yet you found the time over the course of of less than twenty years to write three massive and very well respected books. I, I'm tempted as a final and rather selfish question to ask: How in the world do you do this? <laughs> well, I, I I write relatively quickly, and uh, I'm afraid I'm not the greatest model of uh, taking. Uh, you know, of engaging in, in sporting activities. I take a bit of exercise just to keep reasonably fit, but uh, when other people are playing golf or um, even playing cards or something, I, I you know, I, I like to go to a nice dinner party with friends and have good conversation, but apart from that, I, I in this one area, I agree with Richard Posner. Uh, I mean, I, he is a man with whom I have had an exceedingly unsatisfactory uh, encounter, but... Uh, uh, when he wrote, in, I believe, in that famous interview, or at least the sketch of him in the New Yorker magazine about 12 or 13 years ago, that uh, uh, he, he invited people in for dinner once a week, and the rest of the time he thought he learned more staying at home and reading and writing. And I, I'm afraid I'm a bit like that. That sounds very much like Machiavelli in The Prince, who said that he had to deal <laughs> with uh, with people he didn't really care to deal with all day, but then he would go home, uh, bathe, uh, dine, change into his finest clothes, and go into his library to have a conversation with men that mattered. It sounds <laughs> no, I, very I like most people, and and uh, and I'm, I'm I find everybody has their story to tell. So I'm I'm happy to you know be quite convivial and social, but but not all the time. And and, and I, I I'm just trying to organize a balance here that 
keeps me active in the areas I'm interested in. But it, 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 it's a crowded schedule, and I often find it hard to get everything done. Lord Black, thank you so much for this conversation, and thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Well, thank you, Dr. Mueller, very much for your very gracious reception of me. I hope our paths cross again. There are certain questions that simply loom large in terms of our intellectual environment. And one of them is, or certainly ought to be, how the United States emerged as the leading nation in the world that it is, often described as the world's only superpower. We were able to talk with Conrad Black about only a very small portion of his argument, perhaps the portion, however, that is least known to most living Americans. That portion that speaks of America in the colonial era, working with the British at the expense of the French, and then with the French at the expense of the British in order to emerge as a nation. But Conrad Black writes as an outsider, as a friend of America, but as one who was raised in Canada and is now a British citizen and a member of the British House of Lords. He writes about America from a perspective of some critical distance, but also some very obvious affection and tremendous respect. What he writes about, however, is that America, as it progressed through several distinct stages or phases toward its projection on the world stage, was also brought to that point not only by the external events and the context, the demographics, the economic factors, and all the rest, but by very significant leaders. Leaders, he writes about with tremendous insight. At the very top of that list is George Washington. At the beginning of this story, he's only 22 years old. But by the end of the story, he is known internationally as an iconic symbol of what it means to stand for freedom, for liberty, and for constitutional government. But he is also a man who arrived on the world scene, making a tremendous impact by his character and his integrity, and, if nothing else, his willingness to step away from an office like the presidency of the United States, an office that didn't exist until he was its first incumbent, and go back to private life. Nothing quite like that had happened in the entire history of the world until George Washington did it. To be honest, I gained a new appreciation for Benjamin Franklin and his role in America's emergence as a nation by reading Conrad Black's narrative. And I have to say that I am in fundamental agreement with him in terms of his assessment of Thomas Jefferson, a man of unquestioned brilliance, but a man of erratic political temperament and sometimes downright dangerous ideas. One of the patterns he makes clear in his book is that when America was most vulnerable, it was vulnerable largely because of the absence of the kind of leadership the nation needed at the time. But as he writes, when America needed a specific quality of leader the most, that leader tended to arrive on the scene. After Washington, the next leader to arrive in that sequence is Abraham Lincoln. And Conrad Black offers some revisionist but not cynical observations about Abraham Lincoln and his greatness, a greatness that is reflected not only in the United States but on the world scene. And he credits Lincoln with offering the national leadership to allow America to resolve that time bomb that had been embedded at the very core of its existence from its founding, and that was the problem of slavery. I appreciate very much his very honest evaluations of men like Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, as well as his insights about presidents such as Grover Cleveland. But I think many American readers will find the book most interesting in terms of when it picks up in the history that is most recent, and that is, of course, World War II and the years that followed. That's where Conrad Black also gets to write about at least two men that he had written about so extensively in times past, and those are Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Richard Milhouse Nixon. Both of his biographies on those men, by the way, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Champion of Freedom, and Richard Nixon, A Life in Full, those are very much worth your reading. As a matter of fact, it is hard to argue that Black's biography of Richard Nixon has ever been exceeded, 
and his biography of Franklin Delano Roosevelt is just a tremendous read. In his most recent book, Flight of the Eagle, Conrad Black offers insights in every chapter, and many of these could come, I think, only from someone who is not an American. For instance, in writing about Ronald Reagan, a man he describes as one of the most astonishing men ever to be elected president, he includes the very interesting observation that we see America's role in the world in a new way, and Ronald Reagan's role in it as well, when you look at his funeral. At President Reagan's funeral, former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney and former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher both spoke. Interestingly, Conrad Black notes that was the first time foreign heads of government had ever spoken at the funeral of an American head of state. One of the responsibilities of the intelligent Christian is to attempt at all times to come to a better understanding of the world around us. The world as it is, the world as it was, and the world as it is soon likely to be. Books such as Conrad Black's Flight of the Eagle assist us greatly in this, and even where readers may disagree with points of assessment or evaluation offered by the author, they're likely to think better thoughts simply by the fact that they have been forced to think about some arguments in order themselves to think more clearly. Christians reading a book like The Flight of the Eagle may come across another very interesting observation. Even secular historians tend to use profoundly unsecular language. When Conrad Black writes of the United States as the predestined nation, he does intend to use that word in a secular context, but it only has secular meaning because it had a previously understood theological meaning. Perhaps one insight from all of this is that even secular historians trying to write in entirely secular terms can't avoid entirely what can only be described as a providential understanding of history. And there is no question of world political history that more defies the attempt to speak in non-providential language than the story of the emergence of the United States of America as a nation and on the world scene. In a final observation, every conversation on thinking in public is interesting in its own way. In that light, it was interesting to talk to a man who has had a titanic role in terms of international business and no small role in terms of international controversy. He's known to some as a figure of political controversy and to others as a man who has faced titanic legal challenges. But, and this is the point, in spite of all of these challenges... He's the author of three very important books, each one of them worth our consideration and our conversation. Thanks again to my guest, Lord Conrad Black, for thinking with me today. Before I close, I want to invite you to join us on the campus of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary on Tuesday, October the 29th through Thursday, October the 31st for the Expositor Summit 2013. This year's Expositor Summit aims to contribute to the health of local churches by restoring the primacy of expository preaching in the pulpit. Preachers, pastors, students, and all who love the scriptures are invited to hear H.B. Charles Jr. and Alistair Begg, who will join me as keynote speakers at this word-driven event. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.